the rich man. Zacchaeus came to faith in Jesus Christ. So, uh, praise the Lord. Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. And uh, we are narrowing in on the end of this author's lengthy theological statement about the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And it's really coming to the great conclusion, which is entrance into God's presence, reconciliation with God through the blood of Jesus. Uh, and, and we'll see that here in the text uh, what I'd like to do this morning is just begin reading, uh, so follow along with me in chapter 10 of Hebrews, and I'll read through the first 25 verses, and then we'll talk a little bit. It says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you had prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying... Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands, ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified but the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and in their minds, and I will write them. And in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brethren... Having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near 
with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil or guilty conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So we'll go through this 25 verses a little bit in detail, not extensively this morning. But let me just ask a question in opening. Can I really have a clear conscience? Can I really have a mind that is actually free from the guilt and shame that results from my constant sinning? Well, if not, I'll answer my own question. If not, then I'm inclined to do several things. One, I'm inclined to continue in the same destructive pattern of behavior. Additionally, I'm inclined to become angry, hopeless, despairing, bitter against God and man. I'm inclined to become legalistic. That is, self-imposed rules and regulations that will only result in self-righteousness, self-deception, and hypocrisy. But if yes, if I can actually be free from the guilt and shame that results from my constant sinning, and it is possible, then I'm inspired to love and respect and love and worship the one who has set me free. I want to talk to you about this for a few minutes. And I just want to say to you that uh, I believe that the author, what he's doing here is he's, he's taking our hearts and our minds by faith. He's bringing us into the holiest of holies, the, the presence of God, And he's fixing our eyes on Jesus, who is our perfect and living sacrifice. It takes sustained thought and consideration to overcome the constant nagging torment of the guilt and shame that we experience from constantly sinning as a Christian. It takes sustained thought and consideration, maybe even memorization and meditation. As the opening chapters of the entire hymnal of the Bible, Psalm chapter 1 says, Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. What's the result? He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. It takes time. It's a mental exercise, brothers and sisters. Just as we go to the weight room or we have our devices or whatever to strengthen our muscles physically, 
we need to strengthen our faith and our minds mentally by taking hold of the truth that the author is presenting to us here this morning. And I hope to show you that. It requires exercising your faith in the words of God and living free from sin's control. Wasn't this that I'm saying to you, wasn't this God's counsel to Cain? As Cain found himself being envious and jealous for his brother. Because God respected Abel's offering, but he did not respect Cain's offering. <clears throat> because Cain wasn't giving it in a, in, a loving, in a worshipful manner. And he was aware that God was not respecting that. Sin was in his heart. And what did God say to him? You will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. Cain then was confronted by the word of God, and he had then to bring his mind under control and think about what God had said. God had convicted him of his sin, but he wasn't condemning him. God came to him graciously. And he said, Cain, you're going to result. This is not going to go well, bro, if you continue on in this pattern. If Cain had only considered the truth about himself and the grace of God that had been, that instructed him, the outcome would have been much different. It's the same counsel that the Apostle Paul gives to us. 2 Corinthians 3.18, a famous, wonderful, powerful verse. Paul says, we all, listen carefully, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now notice, beholding, transformed. So when we find ourselves, because of our moral failings, and we're, we're living with this constant nagging guilt, beholding, we are transformed. C.H. McIntosh said this, There is no legal bondage in beholding. There's no restless effort, no anxious toiling. We gaze and gaze, and then what? We continue to gaze. And we gaze, and as we gaze, we become morally assimilated to the blessed object through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. Christ died to give me a perfect conscience. He lives to give me a perfect object. Paul would say essentially the same thing in Philippians chapter 3, speaking of himself. He said, I, one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let those who are mature think this way. And if in another way you think otherwise, God will reveal it to you. Pretty good counsel from a man who had fellow Christian men who were using their expression of the gospel to inflict more pain on Paul. And he goes, what am I going to do with this? 
Because I'm going to gaze at the glory of Jesus Christ until his moral character is assimilated into my life. And Paul was the one who wrote 1 Corinthians 13, who said, Love does not keep a record of wrongs. And that's true of God. It is mostly and absolutely true of God. One thing I'm learning, that sustained thought and careful consideration becomes very difficult if my smartphone has trained me to live on small interrupted sound bites, tweets, texts, and notifications. It's a real thing, and you guys know this. It trains me to be less... Uh, I don't know what to say, less able to give sustained thought and consideration. I find myself getting jumpy and I'm grabbing the stupid thing. Interesting to me, isn't it, to you, that the most influential people in the Bible, in the Bible, spent many days, even years, in the wilderness Abraham, Moses, King David, John the Baptist, Paul the Apostle, Jesus himself. And that's why Jesus said, you need a prayer closet. You need somewhere where you can, are not distracted by the world, by your phone, but just someplace where you can be alone with God. You can take the, the power of the Holy Spirit as you look and gaze into the glorious face of our resurrected Savior and let Him change you, even when you're feeling guilty. Let Him change you. Let me just give you a personal illustration. It's a little bit transparent. But early in my Christian walk, in a long time ago, um, Family was gathered around. We were having, playing um, some sort of a board game. I don't even remember. And during that, <clears throat> I'm too embarrassed to tell you, so I'll just tell you this. I got caught <laughs> looking at something or someone that I shouldn't have been looking at. And... Um, Shortly thereafter, the game ended, and I went upstairs into the bedroom and closed the door, and I went prostrate on the floor next to my king-size waterbed, and I just started pleading with God, please, God, forgive me. I was so humiliated, and my conscience was so soiled. And I heard the voice of the Lord, I swear to you, as I stand here this day, and out of nowhere, the voice of the Lord said, I already have forgiven you. And it stopped me. End of my whining and my crying, I already have, is what he said to me. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. And Jesus said that to me from heaven, where he seated at the right hand of the Father, having accomplished all of my forgiveness. And in that moment, 
in my guilt and shame, I was awakened to the reality that I'm already forgiven. So stop living in that shame. Stop living in that guilt. It's over, Scott. It's over, church. Get over it. And fix our eyes on Jesus. Maybe memorize Psalm 1. Memorize 2 Corinthians 3.18. Beholding, we are transformed. The writer of Hebrews, I just want to remind you, is speaking to Christians. He's speaking to Christians, just like you and me, who seem to have become distant from Jesus for a variety of reasons. And he writes to bring them back to center, to anchor their soul in the love and the beauty of Jesus Christ. You don't need to go anywhere else. He's, he's writing to help them avoid the trap of legalism. And oh, it's so easy to fall into that trap, to put self-imposed rules upon myself. And it's different from discipline. Discipline is I need to, legalism is I have to. And it's different from that. It, illegal, and, and, and the result, Paul teaches us, is it breaks down the unity of the family of the church. It's this weird language of Paul in chapter Galatians, right? Chapter 5. It, if you bite and devour each other, right? It's because you guys are so... What happens with legalism is you just become so self-deceived that you think you're better than the other. You start comparing with each other. You become conceited and competitive, and cynical and critical. And it breaks down the fellowship. Isn't it interesting that the last verse we read here is he said, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves as some of you are. It's because I don't need the church. I don't need the body of Christ any longer. Oh, how good this message is. So, What the author does is, in the first four verses, he does what he's been doing, (laughs) like Sunday after Sunday for the last weeks now, we've been going through this, him relating legalism and the imperfect offering of of the law, and particularly the Day of Atonement, and then it was animal blood, it was animal blood, and he basically says, out with the animal and in with the human. I'm done with that now. Animal blood. Verse 4, it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats, which by the way were the two animals that were used in sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, that one day when the people's sins were covered over, they put a Band-Aid on everything, didn't really heal. They never had a true cleansing and purging of their conscience. It's not possible that the blood of goats could take away sins. Why? Because animals don't have a conscience. Simple as that. Only humans have a conscience. Animals don't have a will. They didn't volunteer for it. They got volunteered. Bring the innocent little lamb. It was innocent in the fact that it never made it a choice in its life. It doesn't look up and go, oh, what a beautiful day today. I'm so glad to be alive. It's just they don't think like that. 
That's why the blood of bulls and goats can't ever take away sin. We need a human sacrifice for human sin. Verse 5, therefore, don't you love that? Therefore. You know what that is? That's God's will. This is God's plan. Therefore. This is God's timing. This is God's decision. This is his will unfolding. For, for thousands of years, there was a system that just foreshadowed. Now here comes the light that caused the shadow. It was all just preparatory for the real. Therefore, when he, Jesus, came into the world, he said, and now the author quotes from Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. Boy, if that doesn't liven up your reading of the Psalms, right? And by the way, I just want to highly recommend to you, and I don't often recommend books, but I want to highly recommend to you uh, The Treasury of David. It's a multiple volume set by, written by Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon. It's free, available on Blue Letter Bible, and I constantly read, particularly his introduction. I love his introductions to every psalm. Blue Letter Bible, look up for Spurgeon, and anyway, um, the author is now taking David's words that were written in Psalm 40, and he's applying them to Jesus, where he says, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body, a body you have prepared for me. Suddenly. Now, I'm going to go off on this for a moment because I think the times in which we live deserve a few comments here. But suddenly, the human body itself became once and for all dignified and respected and of value. A body you have prepared for me. Human life and significance and identity is way more than sex and gender. Do you see the words here, brothers and sisters? Prophetically spoken through the prophet David, he was speaking of the forthcoming of Jesus. This is Christmas, okay? This is, this is the incarnation. But look what's happening. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will. Do you see what's happened here? There's personality. There's will. There's conscience, conscious choice. There's self-awareness. He was a person before he was in the womb. It's exactly what happened when Mary went to visit her cousin Elizabeth, and she's pregnant by about, as near as we can tell, maybe three weeks. She's, she's had this conception inside of her womb for perhaps three weeks. She may not even have skipped her period yet. And that all happened invisibly and supernaturally and privately. She goes up into the hill country of Judea to visit her cousin Elizabeth. And as she entered, Elizabeth yelled, 
Blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? The person was embryonic. Amen. The human body, the human body is not to be glorified, nor should it be changed, altered, or discarded. This text seems to indicate appreciation for the human body. It seems to me that God himself, Jesus himself, is saying, a body you have prepared for me. It seems like there's an appreciation for the human body. It's to be appreciated and admired. David himself, Psalm 139, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. New Living Translation, Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. The human body is to be appreciated or admired just for the intricacy, the complexity of the thing itself. I might have mentioned to you, I was at the eye doctor uh, a few weeks ago, and you know I had cataracts and this different things that have all been taken care of, and it's great. Uh, so she's got this uh, cutaway of an eyeball, and she's explaining why I've got this little floater that won't go away in my eye, and she's pointing. It's, it was marvelous, and she took a whole bunch of time. I think she was really enjoying just downloading all of her education on this naive patient, right? <laughs> and I'm sitting there with this eyeball, she's pointing out all this stuff, and she gets all done, and I go, that's quite a design, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> And that didn't go anywhere. <laughs> I was kind of waiting for a response, you know, to talk maybe if she was willing. It is to be admired. It's also to be attired. <laughs> okay? Let me just say that. Um, the only public nudity uh, that was ever approved was an earthly paradise. Ever since sin... God has appropriately covered the body. Even in the heavenly paradise, where there is an eternal presence with the living God, it tells me in Revelation, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one can number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. The only time your clothes are ever to come off in the presence of somebody else is in the context of marriage. Other than that, keep them on. <laughs> well, take a shower, do what you got to do, but do it privately. <laughs> right? Our body is to be attired and admired. Our body is to be offered to God, just as Jesus did. Isn't that what Paul teaches us in Romans 12? I beseech ye therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Our bodies are to be disciplined. Paul said, I discipline my body and I keep it under control. NIV, I strike a blow to my body and I make it my slave. Let me just clear up one thing. If you look in the text... In verse 20, 
in verse 20, it says, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. Now, that actually is a different word. Sarks is the Greek, right? Body is soma. So what's the difference? There is a difference, a very different word. Basically, as I understand it, the body is the container, the flesh is the contents. The body is the structure, the flesh is the substance. The body is the physical, the flesh is the, dare I say, metaphysical, (laughs) the spiritual, right? That's why our bodies, I think Paul would say in that context, I, I discipline, I strike a blow to my body because in this container, there is a nature that is a monster <laughs> that loves the applause. And that was Paul's context. After I preach, I beat my body into submission. Joni and I were at Eastman Theater years ago to see uh, a musical artist, uh, Bob Bennett, who I really liked. He was actually the guy that was, did the, what do you call that, the opening for Michael Card. And I was a little bit confused because Bob Bennett, you know, great guy, got done singing, and he took off, he was the only one on the stage in this Eastman Theater, uh, and he took off his guitar, and as, the, as his uh, set was over and everybody rises and they're applauding, he took his guitar off, set it down on the stage, and he ran off. And now I understand He's beating his body. I will not stand here and absorb your adoration. Those songs came from God, and my flesh is so prone to self-adulation. Our bodies are to be admired, attired, offered, (laughs) disciplined. One other thing, and by God's grace, we might talk about this more next week. But our bodies are to bear witness to the power and glory of God and the truth of life beyond this life. We have this treasure in hidden vessels, in earthen vessels, rather, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. You're just a man. (laughs) And what we've been called to is supernatural. As somebody once said, you know, look, all clay pots are made out of the same stuff, and it's just a clay pot. It's what's inside that matters. That's what gives it value. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. The body matters. Is that a pun? (laughs) It might be. Um, It does matter. And by the very virtue that Jesus said, a body have you prepared for me, suddenly personality, spirit, became flesh. And they joined together and became a whole human being that identifies with our life 100%. Verses 8 and 9, the author comments on what he's just quoted here from Psalm 40. And he 
repeats himself to just point out that, as he said, verse 9, he takes away the first that he may establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. As I said before, it's out with the animal, it's in with the human. Okay? And then we come, verse 11, and every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man contrast, right? We have imperfect and now we have perfect. Imperfect can never take away sins. Perfect. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. I just want you to notice the contrasts that the author uses from the old legalistic system that never took away sins to the perfect sacrifice, the perfect man, the perfect offering, and our perfect hope, and our perfect object in the times of guilt. Look at the contrasts. He contrasts stands, verse 11, with sat down. That is really, really significant. The priests just constantly... It was, let's just call it job security, <laughs> all right? People keep sinning, we need to have a sacrifice. So they would stand and they would offer repeatedly in contrast to one offering, standing, seating. Jesus sat down. There's no more offering needs to be made. I've, I've atoned for the sin of all men for all time. I've atoned for the sin of all men. I've atoned for your sin and mine for all time. Again, I go back to me lying on the floor in the blue shag carpet that was filthy next to the waterbed going, Lord, help me. I'm so guilty. And he says, I already have. He applied the truth of what he had done. He sat down. I already did, Scott. Get over it. And I did. And I loved and respected and honored and worshipped him. And I came back down with a clear conscience. And he's like, I don't remember that anymore. Don't you remember it either? And that's where the advocate comes in. Or the adversary, I should say. He likes to, he loves to remind us of what a jerk we are or can be. That's a big deal. Standing versus sitting. It's a big deal. That simple little fact that Jesus ascended and sat down, it's over. The other contrast, they offer repeatedly, offering repeatedly because they never could experience a full uh, purging, a full atoning for their sin versus one offering. Offering repeatedly versus one offering. And then as the author says, never take away sins versus perfected forever. Perfected forever. All right? And then he goes to verse 13. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. Now, we've studied Hebrews, and the author gave an extensive lesson on Psalm 119, which is what he just Quoted here again in verse 13. Make his enemies your footstool. Psalm 119, verse 
or Psalm 110, verse 1. Sorry, I don't want to get lost in the detail there. Waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. That tells me a couple things. It tells me that God is just. He is just. And he will judge. Abraham famously said it. As he's talking to the Lord himself. As they're standing on a hill overlooking Sodom and Gomorrah just prior to judgment. And inside that city was Lot and his family. A man, a Lot who was a righteous man, (laughs) whose soul was tormented by the world that he was living in. He was a righteous man. And Abraham said to the Lord, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? He sat down at the right hand of God until his enemies are made his footstool. That tells me that judgment will come, that God is just. But then comes verse 14. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. That tells me that perfection means protection. (laughs) I worked hard on that one. I'm not sure you guys are appreciating that as much as I did. (laughs) Judgment is not for the Christian. And as soon as he gets done saying, yeah, there's a time coming when the judge of all the earth will bring his justice and people will get what they've deserved. And as soon as he gets done saying that, he jumps right into verse 14. For by one offering, he's perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Those who are being sanctified. Those who are going from one degree of glory to another, to another. And it happens over time. A tree doesn't bear fruit overnight. It's got to go through the seasons. It takes time for for the fruit of the Spirit to develop and and to flourish in our lives. All right? And so as soon as he says that, reminding us, it's, it's interesting that he would throw in verse 13 there, that there is a time coming when Jesus will get up off of that throne, he'll get on a horse and he'll ride back down to earth, and he will trample out all the kingdoms of the world that have rebelled against him. But he backs or immediately says in verse 14, but that's not for you because what you deserve, he took for you on the cross. He's already absorbed all of that. Verse 15, but the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us for after he had said before and then he reminds us of uh, the law is written into our hearts and their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. By the way, the, 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 the grammar there literally is the Holy Spirit is constantly. It's an ongoing thing that the Spirit of God is doing in your heart and mind. He's constantly reminding us. And he's actually using these words that were inspired by this man to remind us this morning. The Holy Spirit's reminding you, wait a minute. I've been made right by God's grace. He's written his law in my heart. No longer have I, I've got to do something. I want to do something because he loves me. I'm inspired and motivated by his mercy and compassion that was shown to me in my sin. 
<laughs> He's constantly witnessing to that and how I need that constant witness. He's doing it through his word, through prayer, through fellowship, through preaching, through song, through so many ways. And then he says in verse 18, now there, where, there is no, where there is remission, there's no longer an offering for sin. I think what he's saying is that the perfect offering is alive again. I think that's what he's saying. As I said in the beginning, he's, he's drawn our attention away from ourselves, that morbid <laughs> self-absorption, remembering what happened yesterday. And he's drawing our attention and he's fixing our gaze on the wonder and the majesty of what Jesus has done. One offering, the perfect offering, is alive. And he's seated. He's, he's telling us your salvation is secure in Christ in spite of your experience here on earth. It's not changing that because your salvation is bound up in him, not in your performance. There's no longer, where there's remission, there's no longer an offering for sin. The perfect offering forever for my sin. He's the perfect offering for all of my life, for all of my sin. I already have, Scott. And it's true for every one of you to come and claim your prize. <laughs> All right, let's just be real. Like, okay, so I really appreciate these words from this man and the Holy Spirit. And it's like, but my experience is such that I am, it's hard to get this out of my mind. And, and the behaviors are not changing. Is maybe because you're looking at the wrong thing. You're, you're looking at the, the, the self-imposed rules and it's not working, or you're looking at yourself, you're looking at your past. Look at the Lord. It takes a mental discipline. Remember Macintosh, I quoted him, he's like, we gaze and we gaze and we gaze, and then what? We gaze more. And then his moral character is assimilated into mine. That is what's promised. And we will gain the victory. And it causes us to be free. The sun will set you free. You're free indeed. I want to live in that freedom. It's real. It's not ignoring. And I'm not playing mind games. I'm not saying, oh, well, that didn't really happen. No, it really happened. I really did say, do, think, whatever, those failures happened. But amazing love, it's covered already by the blood of the Lamb. He's not holding it against me. Stop holding it against yourself. He's not. Your king is not. The judge is not. He's like, dude, get out of my courtroom. You're free, bro. 
You ever, I always wondered, you know, what would it have been like if I was Barabbas, right? You guys all know Barabbas, right? He was a convicted criminal. He murdered somebody. And he got caught, and he's sitting in jail. And now imagine this, right? You're sitting in the jail, and they got Jesus up on trial, and everybody in the crowd starts chanting. You know, Pilate says, who are we going to set free? And the crowd starts chanting, Barabbas, Barabbas. He's down in the prison cell going, oh, my God, they're calling for my head. And all of a sudden, the, the cell door opens, and out he comes. He's like, Skid Row, I'm about to die, man. He comes up, and he's standing there, and Jesus gets condemned, and he's set free. Head spin, oh, what just happened? In reality, it's not fair. The dude who was wrong got away with it, and the one who was innocent got destroyed. It was all by design. What a perfect, and I don't know whatever happened to Barabbas. I hope that he came to faith in Jesus, repented, and was saved. But I'm guessing that the glory of what Jesus had done, especially after his resurrection and the preaching of the gospel, it revealed to him, dude, be free. Be free. Well, that uh, brings us to, I think, really the main objective that the author has had right from the beginning of this lengthy theological statement. Therefore, brethren, (laughs) therefore, brethren, because of all this that is true, we have boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Boldness is the King James, an old new King James, and it might say... uh, confidence or plainness of speech, right? I can walk in with my head up as a Christian. Spirit of God in me, not perfect, but I have been completely, perfectly saved by His grace. I can come boldly and enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. tells me we have access to God. We have access to God. That's way too unimpressive. (laughs) And it shouldn't be that way. It should not be that way. It actually grieves me that I'm not more struck by that sheer fact that I have access to God himself. This puny little man actually can, by faith, come into God's very presence without the fear of death without the fear of any judgment for the things that I have said or done because of Jesus. Because he's sitting there as my advocate. He is faithful and just. Now justice is on my side. He's faithful and just to forgive me. His justice, you hear me, friends? It's on my side. He's going to do what's right. Okay, you've put your faith in Christ. You've surrendered your life. Now he's for you. And he will not stand against you. And what he's done in your life, he will uphold that. We have access. Verse 20, by a new and living way, which he dedicated for us through the veil, speaking of that huge veil in the temple separating the holy from the most holy, 
through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. His flesh. I'm just going to alliterate because it helps me. But it seems like when I, I know the gospel, and when that veil, it says I can go through the veil because of that is his flesh, not his body, but his contents. Not the container. Now we're talking about his flesh. We're talking about the willful choices that Jesus made while he lived and the willful choice he made in the garden. Nevertheless, not my will, your will be done for them. His flesh, that's his affection for you and me. I like to hear that. Jesus is deeply, has deep affection for you. <laughs> All of us. He has affection for us. He's turned on by you. Oh, <laughs> he is. He's attracted to us. Verse 21, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. And there's our next A word, assurance of faith. Assurance of faith. So appreciate worship this morning. Lyrics were spot on to this very message, right? We come by faith, not by feelings. I come by the fact that I know that the Spirit of God has declared to my soul that I am His Son, and that transaction that has occurred is secured me now for assurance, and I come by faith. And he says, and here's my point, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He's using priest language, right? Before you could enter into his presence, you had to sprinkle blood and had to wash and the whole thing. But he calls it an evil conscience. In context, it means your guilty conscience. I'm coming in with my guilty conscience and I'm saying, I want to meet with you, Jesus, and be reminded that you are my living, perfect offering for all time. And I want to claim that for myself. So claim it. <laughs> Amen? And as we gaze, it will change our behavior. It will change our behavior. Let us hold, I love the three words here, right? Verse 22, let us. Verse 23, let us. Verse 24, let us. Paul was a vegetarian. Let us. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. By the way, do you see uh, verse 22, faith, 23, hope, verse 24, love, faith, hope, and love, greatest of these is love. Love never fails. Love never fails. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8. Did you memorize that one, Josiah? I did. Okay, all right, whatever. <laughs> Love never fails. All the, all the, uh, the virtues that Paul talks about in love, they never fail, meaning they never cease, they never end. Love never keeps a record of wrongs. Love doesn't do that. Forever. The devil keeps a record of your wrongs. And he holds them up in our face. 
I keep a record of my wrongs. I keep a record of your wrongs. It's, it's evil. It's demonic. Love doesn't do that. It never fails. Love suffers long and is kind. Love doesn't envy. Love doesn't parade itself. It's not puffed up. It's not provoked. Thinks no evil. Rejoices not in iniquity. Rejoices in the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. That's amazing. Never fails. Verse 24, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. And that's happening. Praise God. Calvary Chapel is a healthy church. Praise God. We are, we stir each other up. Really, really good. <laughs> in a really good way. Oh gosh, what a weird thought just now. Stirring each other up. Reggie Jackson, New York Yankees. I'm the straw that stirs a drink, he used to say. <laughs> yeah, well, that stirs up the wrong kind of attitude, right? <laughs> we stir each other up to love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting, and so much the more as you see the day approaching and so much the more as the bridegroom comes out of his chamber like the sun filling the sky and he comes to claim us his virgin bride who have learned to live free who have taken the victory that he's given to us <laughs> right death where's your sting oh grave where's your victory Sting of, how's that go? <laughs> Thank you, Brian. <laughs> but thanks be to God who gives us a victory, amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, thank you for the message this morning to direct our full gaze. Lord, at the glory of you, Jesus. We talk about the gospel, and we need to have the gospel preached to ourselves, just as you've done. It stirs us up to appreciate your body, your literal body, to appreciate the body of Christ. Lord, in one sense, it seems like, I don't know, like maybe can I really be free from what so easily entangles me? Thank you, Lord that you promise it is, we will be transformed. We will. It's not maybe, we will. By the Spirit of God, who is the Lord. And we just declare that, Lord, this morning. We declare that for ourselves. And we offer our bodies as living sacrifices. In all of our brokenness and weakness and sin, and we say, here am I. Take me. Send me, use me. Here am I, Lord. Fill me afresh with your spirit. Cause me to give long, extended thought on your words. Not what other people have said, 
Not listen to what other people said, but long extended thought on what your Bible says and what I've read for myself and considered for myself to redeem the time that I have in the car, mowing the lawn, to redeem that time, to think about your words. And we thank you in advance for the changes, the tangible, real changes that will cause us to, to love and to respect and to worship and honor you. And a witness will come out. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Blessings.